in Matthew 16, and you can turn there if you want. Uh, You don't have to. Uh, We're not going to spend a ton of time there. Uh, But in Matthew 16, uh, we get the story of Jesus with his disciples. Uh, Jesus has just uh, done some pretty miraculous things. Uh, He's fed 4,000 people, not to be confused with the feeding of 5,000 people. Uh, He has healed a sick woman. He has healed a sick, uh, he's healed a woman's daughter who uh, was possessed by a demon. Uh, the woman had great faith and believed that even from a distance, Jesus could uh, cast out the demon from her daughter, and he does. And so uh, when you cast out demons, uh, when you heal the sick, when you feed 4,000 people with very little food, as a general rule, people start to notice you. Um, and so people are talking about Jesus, and Uh, Jesus says to his disciples, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's being said about me. Who do the people say I am? And the disciples respond with a bunch of prophets. They say, some say John the Baptist. Uh, Other, more keen ones, say Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And uh, Jesus says, well, what about you guys? Uh, You're with me most of the time. Who do you say I am? Uh, And Peter, who is just a jewel. He, uh, he's always the first one to kind of chime in. Uh, in very Simon Peter-esque um, manner, he jumps in. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, and this is what Jesus says to Simon. Blessed are you, Simon. Uh, for man has not revealed this to you, but rather God. Uh, you are Simon and on this rock. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And if you were just reading Matthew 16, and you had been reading your Bible uh, in the order in which uh, it's given us in our scriptures, uh, you'd started in Genesis, read through the Old Testament through Malachi, and you got to Matthew, very quickly in Matthew, you would hear Jesus start to use this term, the kingdom of God. And if you had been reading your Old Testament, which you ought to, and if you had read your Bible in order, which you ought to, uh, there is a measure of, a very large measure of inspiration, even to the order in which uh, Scripture is given to us. Uh, And if you had done that, you would be very comfortable with the term kingdom of God because you see it a lot in the Old Testament. Uh, In fact, the Old Testament gives us a portrait of Israel, the physical kingdom of God. Uh, And so for Jesus to talk about the kingdom of God would be quite natural. But as you came to chapter 17 or 16, uh, and you see Jesus use this word church, uh, you'd perk up a little bit. Uh, Because this is the first time, Matthew 16 is the first time in Scripture that we see the word church. It's the first time that Jesus or anyone in Scripture has used the word church. Now, the word that Jesus says in Greek is ekklesia, and that's a common word. That means gathering, fellowship, the the collection. Uh, But for Jesus to say, I will build my ekklesia, is really unusual. And then for Jesus to say, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my ekklesia, 
the disciples did not have a clue what he was talking about. And we, as readers of Scripture, should be curious. Uh, We read the gospel uh, from our context and read back into it a lot of times. And so for us, when we read Matthew, we see the phrase kingdom of God, and we're kind of like, okay, slow down, slow down. How about the democratic republic of God? Are we cool with that? You know, not so much kingdom. We don't really like that. We're American, you know, after all. Um, But when we see the word church, we're like, yeah, I know this word church. And and it really should be the opposite. Uh, Really, when we hear this story of Peter, uh, it leaves us with the question, what is the church? What is the church? What is this church that Jesus is talking about? This thing, this collection, this ecclesia that will prevail against the gates of hell and the forces and powers of darkness. What is this church? And to be honest, this is a, an extremely relevant question right now. Uh, as we have gone from uh, the 20th century into the 21st century, there has been an understanding that culture and philosophy and the times have changed. Uh, and so this question of what is the church has come up anew. And if you go uh, on to Amazon.com or to a Christian bookstore or to a well-stocked Barnes and Nobles, uh, you would see uh, a collection of books written in the last 10 to 15 years on what the church is. You'd see titles like The Externally Focused Church or The Purpose-Driven Church or The Emotionally Healthy Church or Simple Church or Transformational Church, Total Church, which is a good book, Emerging Church, Sticky Church, Deep Church, Vintage Church, Organic Church, Reimaging Church, Church 3.0. Uh, Church next. There are more books on the church and what the church is that have been written in the last 15 years than I think the rest of Christendom combined. People are trying to figure out what the church is and what the church is supposed to be doing. And if you read a lot of these books, not all of these books, but if you read a lot of them, they start with the author, be it a pastor or a theologian, a philosopher, looking at our current situation culturally, who we are as a people and who we are as a culture, and dissecting quite accurately in most cases the culture and saying, how do we build a church based on this? But if you look at Matthew 16... That's not the order. What we have is proclamation of Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then church. Birthed out of that proclamation is the church. And what's interesting is we're studying in Acts right now, and in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, people say, hey, these people are drunk. Peter gets up and he preaches the first sermon of the Christian church. And what does he proclaim? That Jesus, who you crucified, was Christ, Son of the living God, the one whom the Scriptures predicted, the one who the prophets talked about, who the law foreshadows. He was, he was dead and buried, and God resurrected him from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He is waiting for that time when God will make his enemies a footstool for his feet, when his enemies will be placed under subjection to him, when the gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And then directly after Peter makes this proclamation, 
we see the beginnings of the church. And it's no coincidence that both in Matthew 16 and in Acts 2, we have the order, proclamation of Jesus as Christ, and then the church. And so, when we read these books, when we think about the church, uh, when we think about what the church is supposed to be, if we don't start with the proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we're not going to end up with the church. We may end up with a cool club or a charitable organization or even a really great Bible study with good music, but we're not going to end up with the church. And so for us, we, we need to think about what the church was uh, because one thing we can't agree on with all of the books is that fundamentally something has changed from, from Jesus' proclamation in Matthew 16 uh, and the way that the church organized itself, as we'll look at very shortly, in Acts 2, 42 through 47, and where we are now as a church. And one of the best summaries that I've heard, uh, I can't remember who said it, forgive me for that, uh, but uh, he said that when the church started, it started in Palestine, where it was a fellowship of people devoted to Jesus Christ as Lord. Uh, then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then the church moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, the church moved to Europe, where it became a culture. Finally, the church moved to the United States, where it became an enterprise. An enterprise. Last year, the church spent over $4 billion on entertainment. $4 billion on CDs, concerts, conferences, festivals, books, movies, if we can call them that. Four billion dollars. And it's fair, I think, to say that we give our money to what we are devoted to. The church truly has become an enterprise, a juggernaut of capital. That's not the picture that we get of the church that, that forms after Peter's Pentecostal proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that has the Spirit poured out on it. So let's turn to Acts 2, 42 through 47, and let's read it together. Um, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And Luke records that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
God, you are good, and we are so thankful uh, that you called Luke to record these words about the church and its beginning. And I pray that as we look at, at your word, that we would be transformed in the way that we think about being the church, that we would be made new, that we would be conformed to the image of God, uh, to the image of Jesus, who is God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. As we look to answer this question, what was the church? Uh, we're going to look at eight key convictions of the church in Acts 2, 42 through 47. Uh, and I'm going to actually come back to this point, but I think it's important to make it now. Um, part of what the church did uh, in verse 46 is they attended the temple together and they broke bread in their homes together. They got together. This is a part of what they did. And what we, have, what we tend to do is confuse that part of what the church did with what the church was. We confuse church with this meeting on Sunday morning. This isn't something we do as the church. This is church. And so when we read Acts 42 through 47, we see these things and we think, this is what Grace Community Church should be doing. Uh, this is what whatever, fill in church name here, should be doing. Uh, as opposed to this is what we who are the church should be doing. Um, and so with that in mind, these are the convictions of the ecclesia, the gathering of people who were Jesus' church. Uh, the eight convictions, uh, eight things they devoted themselves to. Number one is this, training and education, and specifically training and education in the scriptures and the apostles' teaching. It says it right there in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Quite simple. Christ followers in the first century devoted themselves to Christ's teaching. And what I want to talk about for just a moment is that word devotion. Uh, they were devoted to Scripture. They devoted their lives to the apostles' teaching. Devotion for them was not a 10 to 15 minute daily ritual where they hopped in Scripture for a little bit, churned out one key point that they could use for the day, and went, went on their way feeling good about their time with the Lord. They were devoted to Scripture. Uh, and and I, I've, I've heard uh, people say that I'm, I'm not devoted to Scripture. I'm devoted to Jesus. Um, I don't even know where to start with that to be quite honest, because our only revelation of Jesus is in Scripture. And Jesus himself, his spirit inspired the author of Scripture, and so we believe that Scripture is God's word given to us for our edification and our salvation. And so if God wrote you a letter, to be quite cheesy, um, reading it and spending your time in that letter is devotion to God. You can't separate the two. I just want to get that out. <laughs> you cannot devote yourself to Jesus without devoting yourself to God's revelation of himself through Jesus in Scripture. Devoting yourself to Scripture. 
I love my wife, Melissa. I really do. Um, she's been gone the last few days, uh, and it is only by the supreme grace and mercy of God um, that I'm actually standing up here this morning. Um, and uh, as I said in the first service, if I don't match, I cannot help it. Um, Melissa was not here to shake her head. Uh, so um, just know that. Uh, but I love my wife. Um, she's beautiful. She is smart. She's funny. She's a great mom. Um, she is truly my best friend. Um, I want you guys to, for a second, imagine now this scene. I come to Melissa and I say, Honey, I love you. And I am fully devoted to you. And so, in order to prove my devotion to you, I am going to pencil in the first 10 to 15 minutes of my day just for you. Everything after that, that's mine. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll talk. I'll even give you one hour on the weekends. Um, but 15 to 20 minutes, maybe 30, if I'm feeling like a good husband every day, all yours, because I'm devoted to you, and I love you. It's ridiculous. That conversation would end in tears and pain. Her tears, my pain. Um, because the fact is that my love for my wife compels me to lifelong, daily devotion to her. I'm not only committed to learning who my wife is and to loving who she is for 20 to 30 minutes a day. It's preposterous. And yet we're satisfied. We're so happy to think, oh, I even gave an hour this morning to God. How proud must he be of me? It's ridiculous. Or, or, or 30, 30 minutes a day to studying his word. What, what if you only spent 30 minutes a day doing your job? Like, how good could you possibly be at it? You know, how much could you possibly know? They were devoted to the apostles' teachings. You're called to be meditating on the word of God day and night, all day, devoting yourself to it, reading it and reading it with with insight and, and asking good questions and, and just getting everything you can get out of it. Not just saying, here's my 15 minutes. Let me read my chapter. Come out with my little moral for the day and pat myself on the back. That's not what they did. They devoted themselves to scripture. They devoted themselves to training and education. And if we as a church in America devoted ourselves to training and education, we would not have mega churches where pastors told you that if you prayed hard enough and if you believed enough that God would make you exactly the opposite of who Jesus is. That he would make you wealthy, healthy, popular, happy. When we study scripture, we learn about Jesus. And we learn that Jesus, our Messiah, was God. And that he did not hold on to the wealth that comes with God, but rather he became man. And not just a man. We are devoted to our model for life was a homeless man 
who never got married and who spent his life with 12 homeless dudes. And yet, we flock to stores and buy books that tell us that God wants us to give so we can get more or just to be rich or happy. Uh, and this is not the gospel. We'll see some other things that if we just read our Bibles, we, we, would, we would refute just right off the bat. Um, but we're not devoted, as we ought to be, to training and education. education. Uh, in scripture. Secondly, they were devoted to fellowship and community. Uh, they were devoted, it says in 42, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Uh, they were devoted to gathering together in the temples, which we'll look at next, and, and breaking bread together in their homes. Uh, they spent time together as a community, uh, and they spent time together fellowshipping. And I've talked about fellowship before. We've mentioned fellowship before. But you have to remember that they just had the Spirit of God poured out on them. There were flaming tongues above their heads, and they were speaking languages and hearing in their own language they didn't know. It was crazy. This is Spirit-filled, Spirit-driven, Christ-centered fellowship. This is not getting together to watch Florida State beat Miami. As great as it is to watch Florida State beat Miami, um, that's just hanging out. Spending time together without the intention of building one another up in Christ or seeing each other be the body of Christ is just hanging out. And hanging out is great, but we are called to fellowship together. We are called to let our time together sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron, to let our time together spur one another on to good deeds. We are called to fellowship. Fellowship is worthy of the blood of Jesus. Is the time that you spend with other believers worthy of the blood of Jesus? And, and look, look, I'm not saying don't you get together and just have a dinner. Have a relaxing time as friends. Certainly do that. That's a part of being community. It's a great thing. In fact, if you want to hang out with me for dinner, just call me. I'll be glad to do it, you know, especially if you cook. Um, but, but we're called to fellowship with one another. Uh, they, they devoted themselves to it. Uh, they devoted themselves, number three, to small and large gatherings. That was a part of their fellowship. Uh, it says that uh, they were day by day attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes together. Uh, and that's in verse 46. And the reality is this, that this is where we get this model for getting together in the temple, in our, in our buildings gathering in large gatherings together, and then also having home groups. Uh, they met in their homes. They broke bread. They ate together. They shared their lives together. But they also gathered together as a larger body in the temple. And so we do that. That's, a, that's something we devote ourselves to. That's something that we want for you. If you are a member of Grace Community Church, or if you are going to be a member of Grace Community Church, we really want you to come on Sundays and be in the service. And I know preaching this now, I'm preaching it to people who are here in the service. But we, we, that's a part of it, being a part of those large gatherings. And then going to other people's homes or inviting people into your homes and being the church there. This is what they did. 
There were no brownie points for also going to a small group. Or for going to church every Sunday. It's what they did. They devoted themselves to it. They actually devoted it every day. I mean, you'll see right in the beginning of chapter 3, <laughs> Peter and John are going to the temple on the daily hour of prayer. Just an hour a day where everybody goes to the temple and prays together. Imagine trying to market that. Um, but they were devoted to it. Number four, they were devoted to the sacraments in prayer, and this is what they did when they got together. They proclaimed God's word, and then it says in, in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And I do want you to note the difference between verse 42, where it says the breaking of bread, and verse 46, where it just says breaking bread in their homes. Uh, that little uh, definite article, the, makes a big difference. Even in the Greek, uh, it makes a big difference. This was not just some generic breaking of bread. This was the breaking of bread, otherwise known as communion. They took communion together. Why? Because Jesus commanded them to, and because it caused them to remember Jesus. I want you to see that everything that they do thus far causes them to remember who Jesus was. That he was the Christ, the son of the living God. To remember that proclamation upon which the church is founded. They were devoted to sacraments and prayer. They prayed together. They prayed in their homes. They prayed as a family and they prayed as individual families. Fathers, I'm speaking to you as the spiritual head of your homes. Husbands, fathers, do you pray with your family? It's hard. It can be a punch in the gut, I know. But do you pray with your families? How you pray in your home models for your children what prayer is and what prayer means. Fathers, husbands, lead your family in prayer. Lead your family in studying God's word. Set the example for the importance, the primacy of knowing who Jesus is through the revelation of God's word. I promise you, you can do it. The spirit of God empowers you to do it and you need to do it. They were devoted to prayer. Number five, they were devoted to radical giving and sharing. And, and we start to see how, how they acted as a church. They were devoted to radical giving and sharing. It says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's verse 44. And, verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Um, this is not merely tithing 10% and giving an extra little bit to the benevolence fund. They were selling what they had. They were not giving extra money or even money that they had in the bank account that they had originally 
originally designated to something else. They were giving so much that they had to sell possessions to take care of one another. Why? Because they believed the proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that everything belongs to Jesus, which means nothing belongs to you. In spite of what you've been told, Your personal belongings belong to Jesus Christ, your Lord. And he has given them to you in order for you to benefit the peoples, his people and the nations, to give it away. Think about who Jesus was. Think about what Jesus Jesus did. He gave everything away. He gave his life away for us. How much more should we give our lives and our, 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 our possessions and our, our things away? Do we worship Christ? Do we trust Christ or do we worship and trust our things and our money and our savings accounts and our Roth IRAs? They gave radically. They shared all things in common. The early church, they were not Marxists. Obviously, they believed in God. More so, Marxism didn't exist. But the early church, they weren't capitalists either. It's just the case. I mean, they, they, they didn't hoard their possessions. Um, they, they didn't see the bottom line the same way that capitalism tells us the bottom line is. And, and, and that's just the reality of it. They gave their things away. They shared it in common. Within their church, within the church, there was no need. There are needs in our church, and there are plenty of resources to meet them. Are we devoted to radical giving and sharing? In other words, are we devoted to Christ? Are we going to meet the needs of the people within our church? But it doesn't stop there. Number six, they were devoted to one of their sixth key conviction was performing the signs of the gospel. Uh, it says that the apostles performed signs of awe and wonder and that the people uh, welcomed in uh, the, the lost and, and they, 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 uh, they were held in high regard. They had favor with all the people. Um, They performed the signs of the gospel. And you might be asking, what exactly is a sign of the gospel? Um, And and a a sign of the gospel is an act or a deed um, that shows or gives a glimpse of the kingdom that is coming, of Christ's kingdom. Uh, And a sign of the gospel is given as a means of proclaiming the truth about the king of the gospel. It is necessarily both things. So feeding someone is a sign of the gospel. When you feed someone who is hungry, you tell them, just in the act of feeding them, that there is a kingdom to which I submit to where there will be no hunger. However, you don't stop there. You actually tell them, Jesus is a good and loving king and he can save you, and you can be a part of his kingdom where there is no hunger. You must do both. We must feed the poor, and we must 
preach the gospel along with it. Jesus performed many signs of the gospel. Uh, He fed 5,000. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. Here's the reality of it. The reason it was just a sign was that when he fed somebody who was hungry, their body digested the food, and they again became hungry, just like when we do it. Uh, When he healed the sick, chances are that some virus came and they became sick again. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, guess what? Lazarus isn't walking around Palestine right now. He died again. He wasn't resurrected. He was revivified. We know that he was brought back to life. He died again because that was just a sign of the kingdom that's coming. And we're called to perform those signs. We're called to feed the hungry, to shelter the homeless, to give to the poor and needy, to care for the orphans and the widows. We are called to love radically the outcast. This this is our call, but we're not just called to do that. We're called to, along with doing that, bring this proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because here's the reality. If we feed somebody without telling them that they need Jesus, or if we clothe them without giving them the gospel, we are merely feeding and clothing them on their way to hell. And that's a tragedy. However, if all we are good at is identifying sin in other people, and pointing it out, and calling that the gospel. Um, Or if our gospel is accompanied by a politic, or a philosophy, or a style of worship, there's a hollowness to that too. We're called to do both. Care for the lost, care for the needy, the broken, just as Christ did for us. And then tell them, that's why I'm doing it, because of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Called to perform the signs of the gospel, to bring the gospel with it. (sighs) Next. Uh, They were devoted to one of the key convictions of the church was joyful and sincere praise. It says they ate their food, with glad and generous hearts. Later, we'll see that not only did they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, but they sang songs together, spiritual songs, hymns, psalms together. Uh, They praised the Lord constantly. We're being told to give thanks to the Lord in all things. Our lives are to be marked by joyful, sincere, endless praise of a great and glorious Jesus who has saved us. We have relegated praise and worship to music. Not even just music, but to a section in our bookstores in the music section labeled praise and worship. To a specific chord progression, a few choice words, a general tone. And we've called that praise and worship. But if you remember, these believers did not just do these things in the walls of the church buildings. Their lives were marked by this. This was what was a part of them being the church, was praise and worship. And I come again to fathers and husbands, but for everyone. But are you demonstrating that in your homes? When you get together to pray with your wife and your children 
when you get together to study God's word as a family. Um, this sounds really odd, but try singing as a family. I know like the Von Trops kind of made that very weird, but, but try singing to your great glorious Messiah together. Share testimonies together as a family of the great things that Jesus has done in your life that week, that day, all throughout your lives. Praise the Lord with your families, not just in your church buildings. Again, the way that you model sincere, joyful praise is the way that your children will know it. those of you who are not fathers, husbands, wives, praise the Lord in all things, at school, at work, while you're studying, singing, praying, reading the word. Do it with a thankful heart, with a heart of praise, adoration. They devoted themselves to this. Finally, there was a conviction that ran throughout all of the believers. Number eight, for passionate and effective evangelism. And I haven't said this yet, but all eight of these convictions are related. You cannot joyfully and sincerely praise the Lord if you are not studying his word and seeing the great depth of mercy and grace that he has shown you. Nor can you effectively evangelize without radically giving yourself, giving of yourself to the lost. The reality is that the scripture tells us uh, in verse 47, that they were having favor with all the people, probably as a result of their radically giving and sharing and caring for and showing compassion to the people, probably not as much in ancient Palestine because of their thought-provoking prayers or their political rallies. Um, and then it says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were passionate, and they were effective evangelists, and you are called to be that. You are called to share the gospel with the lost, and I will address your first inclination. I, that's not my calling. I'm hospitable. I cook for people. I'm joyful. I make people happy, but I, I'm not comfortable telling somebody that they're a sinner and they need Jesus. Um, it's not my spiritual gifting. Evangelism is not a spiritual gift. It's a spiritual mandate. And on top of that, you, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers you to share the gospel with people. It empowers you to see somebody, to 
exegete them as a person, to learn who they are as a person, and then to see their cracks and their wounds, and to know how and to effectively communicate how Jesus Christ is the salve that mends all wounds, and how the gospel is perfect for their needs. You were uniquely designed with your personality to interact with people in a manner that you can, through who you are, share a, 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 a perspective on the gospel and how it's affected you. And you've been called to do it. And the reality is we don't do it because we don't think we should. We don't do it because we're scared and we don't think we can. Um, and it's not you. It's the power of the Spirit. You can share the gospel. We, most churches, their, their philosophy, the way they do church, the way they market and strategize is based on the expectation that they will get gradual, consistent growth. A few families here, a couple people there, a few more children in the back there, and we can manage that. It's not... Uh, a philosophy of church that, that allows for them to, be, to have thousands added to their numbers. And that's what was happening to the early church. Without large budgets and, and without all of the things that we, we feel like we need. Why? Because they were passionate about Jesus and about the gospel. And they, they told people. And they cared for people. And they said, look, I'm giving as Jesus has come and given to me. There is a community of people who, just like you, are broken and whom Jesus has fixed, has made whole, whom Jesus is fixing and transforming, who live by the power of the Spirit in ways that the world just does not. But you can do that. The reality is that these were not convictions of a congregation. These were the convictions of the people. Remember, we are the ecclesia of Jesus. We are the gathering of Christ's people. We are the gathering of Christ's followers, um, which means really that we have a challenge, and that is to go be the church. Uh, you will hear David frequently say, you have not come to come to church, but you are here to be the church. And I'm telling you to go and be the church. Don't just come to be the church. Go to be the church. When you hear and see the power that the early church had through the Spirit by the proclamation of Jesus as Christ, the Son of the living God, that same power, that same proclamation, you have. Go be the church. You can be the church. When you hear this, a philosopher, Kierkegaard, tells a story um, of ducks. Uh, and he's a Christian philosopher. Uh, he tells the story of these ducks, and, and all these ducks get together, and they go to their duck church. Um, and the duck pastor quacks about how they have power and their wings are meant for flying and they can fly and all the ducks quack amen. And, you know, they're, they're, yeah, they're so pumped up about the fact that they can fly with their wings. And then they waddle home and do nothing about it until the next Sunday. And um, slowly these ducks become fatter and fatter and their wing muscles don't really work. And then... 
Um, after a while, some ducks say, you know what, we're going to try and fly. And so they sit there and they start flapping their wings. You know, they say that our duck pastors told us we can fly and they start flapping their wings. And over time, what happens is that the ones who just hear the word and agree with it and go home, they become extremely fat. And the ones who don't become really skinny and they start jumping and taking little bounds and the ones who are fat begin to mock the ones who are skinny for always being outside flapping their wings uh, and eventually the ones who try to fly do uh, because the reality is that their wings do work and allow them to fly and then the fat ducks who heard the word and did nothing die. They're eaten by predators. I don't know how they die, but they do. This is the reality. We come into our churches. We hear this proclamation of the gospel of who the church is, and, and, and when we just go home. Don't just go home. Don't become spiritually fat and dead. When we read this, we don't need more books to tell us who the church is or what the church is called to do. We don't need more conferences. We don't need more rallies. We don't need more CDs. We need, we need God's word, and we need to just go be the church. Go be the church. Let's pray. God, we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he came to fulfill your word, that he was killed, was crucified, buried, dead, and that you and your power raised him from the dead, that he ascended to heaven where he sits at your right hand, that he gave us his spirit which empowers us to be the church, and that our our ability to be the church is not our own, but the Spirit's. And so I pray that by the power of the Spirit, we would go, we would radically serve those who are in need, we would radically love each other, we would devote ourselves to your word, we would devote ourselves to prayer and to fellowship to one another, and that through that devotion, through the power of your Spirit, your Son would receive glory, and the nations would be made glad as they hear and believe that Jesus is the Christ. Son of the living God. And it's in the name, the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.